The Startup to Scale-Up Game Plan is brought to you by Alpina Search, Europe's premier talent search firm, dedicated to helping technology startups and scale-ups recruit high-impact executives. Now over to your host, Gary Riemann. So, uh, welcome to my special guest this week, uh, Tom Bradley. Hello, Tom. Hello, Gary. Uh, Tom's uh, head of the uh, ventures team at Oxford Capital and um, earlier in his career Tom was a, a partner at DFJ Esprit and then DN Capital and he's been involved with uh, many successful startups and scale-ups like uh, Performance Horizon, Shazam and uh, Net Economy and uh, his current portfolio, the uh, Oxford Capital Ventures portfolio includes uh, promising startups and scale-ups like uh, Import.io, Ultrasoc, and, uh, and Redsift. So, um, so Tom, welcome again. And um, yeah, when we last spoke, uh, you mentioned um, Performance Horizon as a, as a company you'd invested in, which had successfully scaled globally. So yeah. I'd love to hear a bit more about that. How did you get involved with Performance Horizon and uh, what are some of the challenges they've overcome in terms of scaling globally? Yeah, so so um, so the, the core of the Performance Horizon team was the core of the team at a business called Biat. Um, so Biat was an affiliate network that was acquired by AOL back in I think 2008, uh, 125 million dollars or, or thereabouts, um, and the um, the the Biat team sort of reformed. Um, a couple of years after they'd sold um, that business, um, but they reformed sort of without the the founders of Buyout, who had made substantial money out of the the, the, the transaction and gone off to do other things, and without Kevin Cornells, who was the the CEO at the time of the exit, who, who went on to run um, Glasses Direct or My Optique Group, as it was as it was later known. But so Paul Fellows and Malcolm Cowley, um, Pete Sheen. Um, the, 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 those guys who had sort of been the next layer of the management team, the guys day to day that had been responsible for delivering the products and you know and and, and getting things done, were the team that sort of came back together um, with the the concept for Performance Horizon. The concept was basically to to having built an affiliate network, having successfully sold an affiliate network, they decided to build a software product which would mean that you didn't need an affiliate network. Um, so um, so that in itself was a, an interesting disruptor, but obviously the you know one of the um, the the main reasons why I wanted to to get involved was you know would work with the team at um, at uh, DFJ Esprit had some success with them um, and perhaps most importantly a, a guy called Bruce McLaren who very sadly died before we could bring this to to fruition so Bruce was the chairman of Buy.at um, and then looked at buying that business back with with his team and then eventually started collaborating with them on on building this plan and Bruce was a phenomenally successful guy. Um, very good judge of people, um, and and absolutely convinced that um, that Malcolm, who is the the CEO of Performance Horizon, had what it takes to 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 be a great CEO because this was his you know this was his first CEO gig if you like. Um, so so you know in all of that sort of Bruce's in ju judgment and endorsement was was important to us, but also the um, you know it was a combination as it always is at the early stages of belief in the team. And belief in the, you know, the the problem space that they're going after, and their and their ability to to execute. So, so we put a seed investment um, into Performance Horizon, small seed. Um, you know, I actually forget whether it was a quarter of a million or half million pounds originally, um, but you know, certainly at the low end for what we were doing at, at DN Capital at the time, 
but we were their first institutional backers and you know and back them from basically a, a pre-product stage um to bring a product to market and then obviously we, we you know we began to increase our investments as the you know the the, the product gained, gained traction and the story developed yeah it's an interesting that you got involved so early, as you say, pre-product wasn't the normal stage of investment when you're at DN Capital. So um, for, for companies that are really, really early stage, uh, enterprise software companies, pre-product, looking at speaking to, to VCs, are there any lessons to learn from from that in terms of ra raising funds before they they've even got um, a, a live product yeah I, I, so, so i think you're right to point to that i think it's very difficult i mean in in that case um you know and in the case of red Sips, which you mentioned earlier which is in the oxford capital portfolio which is another pre-product seed investment that we did in both of those cases i'd had prior experience with those teams so you know, we were prepared to to make that very early investment but we did that, you know, having had the, you know, the knowledge of, you know, what the people were like, what they were all about, um, you know, and their, their their qualities and capabilities. I think making those investments where you don't have prior knowledge of the team is is very very difficult to do because um, if you know the person and you know their personal ethics, you know their work ethics, and you know their you know, sort of the technical qualities, you can have a pretty high degree of confidence that they will be able to ship a product that might meet a market need, whether or not it will meet the market need or not. You can't. You, obviously be sure um but you can be confident that they'll get product out where you don't know the people then you run the risk that, that you know the product may not even come to life let alone fit the market and that that's probably not a, a risk worth taking so um so, so so i think in those situations if, if i was a pre-product founder i would obviously uh, be focused on talking to those people that knew knew me best people that had you know, worked with me in the past um, and therefore, we're prepared to, you know, to to make that leap based on, you know, what they what they knew of me and, you know, what they thought that I could deliver. Because coming to the institutional market, certainly to to try to raise at that stage is a pretty difficult thing to do. Yeah, yeah. agreed. So if I were a pre-product entrepreneur um, and I came to you for some advice, and I didn't really know any investors or VCs. Yeah. Um, what what advice would you be giving me in, in those circumstances? Yeah, so I think that there's two tracks to to run on there. So so one is to you know while you're talking to me and other investors to bootstrap the product as much as possible. Um, so in the you know in the absence of a pre-existing relationship and you know if I you know I hadn't met this person before, didn't know what they were all about. If we were talking for a few months and during those few months I could visibly see the product progressing that they were you know that they were conjuring something with very limited resources then you know then obviously that would that would um give me a good indicator that um you know that there was potential here um but also you know i would advise advise people to to play the long game as well i think you know for um for companies and we're particularly sort of talking about software companies and in this segment we invest in uh, in enterprise companies and we also invest in in consumer businesses but 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 enterprise businesses that are going to grow to, to great scale will we'll go through sequential rounds of funding um, and although um, it, you know although the risk may not be right for, for, for me at this point in time um, it may well be at a, at a future round and um, you know we like to build relationships over a, a long period of time I think of the you know the dozen or so investments that we've made out of the Oxford capital funds in the last 18 months um, which is a pretty good clip well over half of those have been um, 
with entrepreneurs that we've had previous relationships with or that we've been following for a long period of time. So it's actually relatively rare that we're, you know, that we're meeting someone saying, yes, we love the entrepreneur. Yes, we love the opportunity. We want to do this. Typically, the, um, we have obviously the capability to do that because sometimes, you know, you, um, you get hit between the eyes and, you know, and you, you, you want to compete for that deal. Uh, but generally, these things are developing um, as relationships over a period of time. And I think it's important for, for founders to understand that, you know, the, over, the longer the period over which they build the relationship, the better and more consistent the communication during that period, then obviously the, the, the greater um, you know, the greater the confidence level of the, the, the investor. And we, we actually have an advisor to our fund, uh, Robert Easton, who was uh, head of technology at Carlisle for a long time, and he shared some of the um, Conway, who was the founder partner at Carlisle, has his, his uh, laws of private equity. And I think the way that he says it, which is really pretentious, but actually sort of hits it, is that um, gestation period correlates positively with IRR. So basically, the, the longer you're cooking a deal for before you actually get it done, then you know the the more positive the the correlation with um, with investment returns. So, so so yes, take the time to to get to know people beforehand um, as an investor, but also it cuts both ways for for a founder bringing an investor into your into your business to your board table into your cap table. It, you know that's a big decision because once they're in, it's very difficult to get them out. So if you make the wrong selection, um, you know you don't get along. You're not aligned on you know what the right things or you know broadly what the right things are for the business, what the priorities are for the business. Personalities don't mesh. It's you know it's, it's very difficult to get out of that. So for, for for both sides, I think it's really important to invest in the the, the relationship because as an early stage investor, you know, you're not going to be there for the last couple of years of the journey. You're going to be there for the for, for the duration, and the duration can be long. Tom, what do you look for in terms of the mindset of an enterprise? software founder or leadership team and do you have any different criteria for b2c startups yeah and i think the, i mean the, the, i mean one of the key differences between um some of the consumer stuff that that, that we look at and that we get involved with and some of the enterprise stuff is that in consumer in, in consumer companies it, it, it can be pretty easy actually to generate momentum at some level in the business right i mean if you have an e-commerce business uh, even mobile apps businesses of some sort if you spend money on marketing you can drive business volume. Um, it may not be sustainable business volume, but, but you can do it. Right? I mean, over time, obviously, you have to you know, evolve into a situation where your, um, you know, your your customer acquisition cost um, is paid back multiple times and hopefully pretty quickly by the you know the net contribution per customer. But getting things started is comparatively easy in a consumer business because the magnitude of the purchasing decision is you know is is, is relatively low for most of these sort of small discretionary things. Or certainly things where there's a sort of a freemium element. In, in enterprise, obviously, it's pretty different, right? You have a you you have a, a set of buyers who um, you know have very clear processes around how they purchase. Um, they have complicated decision making processes that involve uh, you know numerous people in numerous parts of the business. Um, you know, there are there are many many more considerations that, that come into play. So, so so generally speaking, I would say that the the founders that we meet um, who are founding enterprise businesses tend to be a little bit older um, than the founders of um, some of the consumer businesses because I think um, it, it, you know just being you know, young and brave in consumer actually there's been a huge number of you know very very much very outsized successes in um, you know in consumer so Facebook and Google being two 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 very obvious ones uh, the beginning of those businesses was um, it, it, yeah, it, it, you know, it was it, it was comparatively easy to, to get some momentum behind it. Whereas if you're trying to sell a piece of software, 
you know, into a, um, you know, into a major financial institution or you know, a major utility, then then you know, you you need some experience or some experience around you that can enable you to do that, and you need a, a you know, a, a, a more patient uh, approach. Um, and you need to, you know, you need to probably do a bit more planning and a bit less iteration, right? So um, the um, consumer businesses that we're involved in, that they, they work on very rapid iteration cycles. They try a lot of stuff and they throw it out of the boat. Um, and the things that stick get kept, and that's what they scale on. For, for I think for enterprise, if you try that approach, and I have seen that approach where people have tried to, you know, to iterate and you know revise strategies and products and pricing and approaches very quickly, I find that generally it has confused the market um, and it's very difficult to generate momentum like that. So, so yeah, it's a, it's a, a different set of skills, I think, for, for enterprise and consumer. Yeah, a different set of skills. And, and, but sticking with the idea of mindset, um, there was something there about the mindset of the, of the founders or yeah. the owners. So, so net economy, just for people who are following along, so, so this was a, a business that we Actually, when I was at um, DFJ Esprit, we did the full buyout of this business. Um, so we, we actually we owned the whole thing, lock, stock, and barrel. So not a traditional venture capital deal in that respect. But it was um, a company that was selling software to major financial institutions um, uh, to allow them to um, to detect, monitor, and report on um, money laundering events, fraud events, um, and, and other you know, fraudulent activities sort of across their across their account base. Um, and uh, you know the the investment thesis that we had for the business, I think, so in, in terms of the space was good. I mean, they were aligned with a, um, you know, a technology wave and a compliance wave, which required institutions to have this. Um, I think probably the, the sort of the, the weakness of the investment case, if there was one, and this is the weakness of Outlook, um, without any disrespect to the team, several of whom are still, still good friends, and we, we got a good outcome on this deal, but we, we made the mistake, I think, of backing the European one, quote unquote, um, and what I think I've learned over the years is um, certainly, you know, uh, you know, as time has progressed, backing the European one um, of, you know, any sort of software variant is probably not a particularly good, good strategy. Um, and what we found in that business and what we see generally across the market is that, um, that very well funded US competitors were very capable of, you know, of accessing and, um, and disrupting you know, European markets. And we, you know, we ended up being I think under-resourced compared to some of those competitors. But ultimately what happened in that investment is that we sold it and we sold it quite successfully. We made a multiple of our money, um, not you know, you know, the you know sort of 10x venture returns that we um, that we seek, but we made a multiple of our money, but we decided actually that you know that getting a good price today was better than than hanging on because the competitor activity was stepping up um, and we felt that we were you know we we, we didn't have the the product capability, we didn't have the financial resources, and we didn't have the the excuse me the the mindset to be um, to be the global champions we'd always thought about being the best one in Europe, um, and that turned out to be a, a limited and limiting strategy. Yeah, um, whereas Performance Horizon, for example, has gone on to be a true global success story. So um, we we were talking about them earlier in 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 this conversation about how you got involved in them right from the start. Um, what did they do that worked so well that helped them to, to become global leaders? Yeah, Performance Horizon is, is I think, a really interesting story in that respect because so the business started in Newcastle um, and actually the sort of the, Newcastle's really important in the DNA of the business. Um, 
you know, the, the, you know, the, um, very proud of where they come from. Um, you know, there are good software skills in Newcastle. Um, you know, a lot of that result revolves around Sage and what have you, uh, but it's also a fairly small community. Um, so they were very well embedded in that community. And in the early days of the business, what they did fantastically well was basically pull all of the good tech people out of the local businesses and assemble them around this, this core team, which had, you know, built and sold by hat. So they had a really well bonded, um, very cost effective, very loyal, um, the, the development team at the beginning, which allowed them to, you know, to build the product foundation for the business. Um, and, and, you know, and, and Newcastle, I think is still really strong in the, in the DNA of the company. But it isn't what the company is anymore. It hasn't been for for, for quite a long time. And I think what um, what Performance Horizon did to, to their credit was actually that they, um, no pun intended, they actually they, they raised their horizon pretty quickly early in the life of the business. They were like, yes, we have to be in London. The actions in London. We have to be in the U.S. You know, they were on planes the whole time. They were getting over there. Um, you know, they were in New York. They were on the West Coast. Um, and then they started you know, building a U.S. presence to, to tap into a customer base, actually, which was more prepared to buy their product than the, the customers closer to home. And they, they, they made that bet. And Malcolm, the CEO at um, Performance Horizon, you know, moved himself to the, to the U.S. relatively early in the life of that business to capitalize on, on, on the opportunity. Um, he said, this is where the customers are. You know, this is where this is, you know, this is where the business is building. I need to be there on the ground. I need to, you know, to, to manage that sales team. I need to, you know, to, to be in the, in the face of the customers. And, you know, if we were to compare that with net economy, um, net economy tried to do it exactly the, the other way, which was to pretend to have a presence in the U S they had a PO box in New York and they, you know, they serviced you know, U S and overseas customers over the phone from a, you know, a, a, a European service center and so on and so forth. So, and so, so performance horizon really made that, you know, that, that, that commitment, that personal commitment to, you know, to uproot uh, lives and to spend time on planes and, you know, and, and be there and do it and do it with the founder who obviously carries the, the culture and the, the vision of the business um, better than, than anyone else else could. And, and, and that was really important. It, you know, the sort of the parochial nature of where they started and the fact that they, you know, the, the business was born in a very small community was a real strength. But the fact that they recognised that and you know started to address a much wider community early in their life has also been a been a, been a really important development point for them. Sure. So getting feet on the ground early, getting a, a physical presence locally when you're expanding internationally, clearly that that makes a, a big difference. How about yeah. bringing in um, overseas investors? Did Portfolio yeah. Horizon or indeed any of the other portfolio companies you've been involved in? Did they bring in? Um, um, North American investors when they when they started expanding in that direction, they, they, they did, um, and and generally I think that's that's quite a good thing. So in the case of Performance Horizon, they brought in first Greycroft. So Ian Sigalow uh, led the, the the round subsequent to the the one that I led, um, and then um, Mithril came in the the subsequent round did the the Series B and Mithril's Peter Thiel's growth fund. So um, so yeah, so they they. Um, they had you know, good backing from a top East Coast fund and top West Coast fund, um, which has been obviously really helpful and you know, and complements you know the the you know the network that you know that that we have and that we had back in those days with the N uh, in Europe. So so I, I'm a I, I'm I'm a, a big fan of companies who are intending to expand into the U.S. going raising local capital. I think it you know, it is a larger capital market. Um, it, you know, it brings a, a local expertise and, and a network that allows you to, you know, to, to navigate faster, um, you know, to, to get your pattern recognition quicker. 
um, you know, to build teams quicker. Um, and obviously, you know, the availability of capital opens up additional opportunities. And, um, uh, you know, I'm, I'm glad that, um, that they were both persuaded to, to come in and give that business a chance to, to scale. Have any of your current portfolio raised money from US investors to help them uh, expand into the States? Yeah, so, so um, actually in the Oxford Capital portfolio, broadly speaking, we've got a pretty good track record of bringing in overseas investors. Um, so, so, you know, historically, the, the investment mandate of the fund has been a bit broader. So, you know, we've, we've had some clean tech companies and, um, you know, healthcare businesses in the portfolio historically, and that's not where we focus now. Um, but one of those companies has raised hundreds of millions of dollars from investors in the Far East, um, you know, because that's where, you know, that's where their, um, you know, their, their core business is. Um, and similarly, we've you know we've had um, companies historically that have raised in the in the US. I have one um, company in the it, it's it sort of sits at the junction of the consumer and and um, an enterprise portfolio. Um, they're, they're in discussions with US investors at the moment. They have they have time sheets, and it looks like they will um, they, they will raise in the US um, because that's their direction of travel. Um, so it makes sense, but you know, but equally, um, you know, if you if you do that too early. Um, and in the context of, of that one, we've been having the discussion this morning, right? If you bring a board member onto the board who is based in California for a business which is still not ready to make a big commitment to the to, to, to the US that still needs to, you know, to perfect its recipe perhaps in, uh, you know, in its home market, then you put some stretch into the organization and make scheduling difficult, uh, make spending time together difficult and, you know, and therefore it makes it difficult to, you know, for them to, you know, to, to bond with the company and to contribute. So, um, so, so I, you know, there's definitely you know, two sides to the coin. Um, you, know, you know, great, um, you know, some great investors in the U.S., great, great experience, great ecosystem, great availability of capital. But um, it, you, know, it, you know, trying to manage that communication from San Francisco to London, eight hours apart, is you know, is is is, is difficult. And there are times when when that doesn't make sense. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, let's look forward for a few moments. Tell us about the next three years for you and your roadmap for uh, Oxford Capital Ventures. Yeah. So, um, so, so you know, it's been Oxford Capital has been around for 17 years. I've been making venture capital investments all that time. So, over the last two years, I've been leading the the venture capital strategy. And um, so, and we're focused on seed and Series A. That's uh, that's our entry point to the market, and will continue to be. Um, you know, it's where we've built our track record. It's where we've built our network, um, and it's where we have we have real strength. So, you know, we've been looking at some crunch base data. Um, we've been the third most active investor in UK tech startups, one to ten million pounds over the last um, whatever is it, twenty months since the beginning of two thousand sixteen. So that's a big step up in activity rate for us. Um, you know, and that's starting to be recognised by the market, which is great to see. Um, so, firstly, we we want to continue that. We want to continue being um, an active and strong partner to, you know, to the best of British early stage tech. Um, but also, you know, we, we, we have plans to, to develop products as well, which will help us support those businesses further through their, through their life cycles. So, um, so, so we're, you know, we're, we're thinking about how, how best to, to be able to, to bring more capital to the later stages and, you know, and continue to build on that period of active ownership, which we have at the moment, taking companies from, in some cases pre-product, but generally from around the time where they have first product or are starting to find product market fit to the point at which they, you know, they raise double digit millions of scale up money. Um, at the moment, that's our, that's our core skill set and will continue to be so, um, you know, we'd, we'd like to add capital pools to be able to invest more heavily in those, uh, in those later stages as well, because obviously then that leverages the work that we do at the, 
at, at the early stage. Um, you know, we, we continue to be focused on the UK, um, you know, so I would never say never on international. Um, I've done quite a lot of investments in Germany, I've invested in France, in the Netherlands, um, Sweden, you know, so, so have operated broadly across Europe, but, but right now I remain convinced that the UK economy, uh, sorry, UK opportunity um, is, is very, very strong. Um, so, you know, even um, you know, even with the Brexit context, I'm convinced that there are areas of technology in which the UK will continue to excel, and the UK will remain a great place to you know, to to start and build many of these businesses. So, um, so for the for the for the foreseeable future, I expect that to be our to be our focus, and we continue to you know to evolve our view on tech market sectors. I mentioned Best of British, and we want to be investing in companies where we think the UK can produce global market leaders. Um, you know, world's best businesses, and obviously that guides us towards um, segments like obviously AI and machine learning. Um, we think a lot about the future of retail, future of financial services. We've been thinking a lot about um, insurance, um, about the future of mobility, the way that people move around increasingly crowded cities. Um, you know, the the way that you know an aging population is provided for. Digital health obviously is a um, a big player in that. So so so, and all of these are areas that align not only with um, you know, with long-term secular trends, but also with where the UK has has you know genuine power and its um, and its talent base. So, um, so yeah, we'll continue to do that, but we want to do that on a on a larger scale. Okay, sounds like you got some really exciting best of British plans. So that's 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 great to hear. What's what's your most recent publicly announced investment, and why specifically did you to did you decide to invest? Yeah. So, so the last, I forget the the which one we've done um, one very recently, which we've not announced. We've got some more coming down the pipe. I think the last couple that we announced, one was Curve, and the other one was Ultrasoft, which you you referenced at the beginning of the conversation. Um, so, Curve is a fintech company, um, which is allowing you to use basically one card coupled with a with, with a, an app on your phone to manage all your payment sources and all your all you know, all your uh, all your spending. So, basically. They're inserting themselves in, you know, in, as a as a front card and as an application in front of your HSBC Mastercard or your, you know, Barclays current account card, um, and it's capturing all that data about what you're spending on, and then enables them not only to understand you as a consumer and offer you you, you um, products and services that give you, you know, to give you a, a benefit and a behavioural change in terms of understanding and tuning your spend, but they can also offer you financial services at the point of sale and insert themselves into the the the, the moment of the transaction. So. We're very excited about that. Um, we did that investment again, you know, pretty much on the strength of the team. Um, you know, it's 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 early days um, in, in in that business. There, you know, that that's not a pre-product company. They have some evidence of product market fit, um, which we can see through you know through adoption rates and you know and usage rates amongst the adopted customers. Um, but you know, you know we're we're looking there at the usual combination of team and product. It's a fantastic team that's built you know a um, a really strong product and. And also, I think that a team also that has the sort of the political capability to navigate a market, which is very difficult from a um, both from a business development perspective, because you're dealing with the Mastercards and American Expresses and Santander's and you know Barclays and HSBC, really, really big capital parties. Um, but also, you know, a um, you know a, a changing regulatory landscape. So, um, so yeah, so we're excited about that one. But but um, on an enterprise theme, Ultrasoft, which is um, uh, which is software that helps um, designers um, of complex system on chip um, 
to basically to to reduce the risk in those um, those design processes, which um, which are you know both long and very expensive um, and prone to failure, and and, and ultrasonic reduces that risk. Um, so my colleague Miles led that deal. Um, as we mentioned before, it's a company he had followed for a long period of time. Um, so obviously that increases the level of confidence. Um, so Rupert Baines is the CEO there. Um, so uh, both Miles and I have known Rupert for a long time, going back to his Pico chip days. Um, so so we've got um, you know sort of a few miles on the clock with him, and then also sort of around the the broader management team and the you know the advisors and board of the company. Um, you know many people like Chris Wade at Octopus who also has you know has been a venture partner with Oxford Capital in the past. You know people that we know and trust. Um, you know who are you know who are helping the, the business to develop. So. Um, again, it's that combination of belief in the market space, but also comfort around the team because we've we've built a relationship with them over a period of time, um, and that's that's also I think the sort of deal which is really in Mars's wheelhouse. He came from Qualcomm. Um, he's an engineer by background. Um, this is you know at the more deeply technical end of the the portfolio, and um, because he has a deep tech background, you know we're capable of assessing and, and executing those deals. Uh, possibly some of our competitors would steer away from it because you know they didn't have the, the specialized expertise to do it. If you weren't a VC, what other profession would you love to try? Oh, what a what a good question that is. Um, uh, chef. Um, <laughs> uh, I don't know. Uh, yeah, I, I you know I, I have asked myself at various points during my career. Is this the right thing? Should I should I be doing this or should I be doing something else? And one of the things about venture capital is that you never really know whether you're any good at it or not. Um, I mean, in the final analysis, you can you know look at the cash to cash returns of everything that you everything that you did. But you know, often a lot of these stories they take time to um, to, to evolve, and you know, and, and things feel fragile as they as they build. So you know, you you have to have confidence in your you know in yourself and in your in your method. But you know, over the years that I've been doing this, and it's quite a lot of years now. Um, 17 years. Um, so I started in venture very early in my career. Um, so there were points on that journey, not not so much recently, but certainly you know sort of in the in the first eight or 10 years of that, where you know I was asking myself, you know, do, do I believe in this opportunity? You know, can this you know UK and European venture capital market actually even function at all? Um, and do I want to be in it? And you know, I, and you know, in the end, I answer both those questions, you know, with a with a yes, but it wasn't obvious for a while. So you know, obviously, I thought in that period about other things that I that I might do. Um, um, it, you know, and some of those things. So it's just, I, I joke about being a chef, and I love cooking, and um, and uh, you know, it's a big thing in my in, in my family. And you know, there's part of me that would you know would love to have um, you know to have been chef or you know to you know to 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 run a food business. Um, there's a big part of me that um, you know would love to have actually sat on the other side of the fence, and you know, and um, and you know, and and, and help to to you know to to build a you know a a, a VC backed or uh, or similar type of type of operating company. Um, but I don't I don't have that many regrets. I, I, I you know I, I love what I do, but I sometimes look down the path that I didn't take and thought oh, that would have been fun. So. <laughs> so what's your what's your favorite dish to cook? What are you renowned for? So, uh, uh, so I'm 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 good on Italian. So so because basically it involves concentration and not a lot of ingredients. So um, so it's got to got to get it right. So so I think the um, you know the the um, the Italian repertoire is, is strong. I make some good sauces. I mean, the things like you know you know Bernese sauce and what have you. I can uh, I can whip up and that's that's pretty good stuff too. So that's that's the more the more technical end for me. <laughs> 
the the cooking the you'll forever be known as the uh, the cooking VC from now on. So oh, yeah. Be your new your new strapline. No, there we go. Well, hopefully, I'll be known for, for some of the investments that I've made as well. But um, but yeah, it's a it's a it's a fun thing to do, and it's a good way to relax at the end of the day too. <laughs> so, who inspired you to be who you are, Tom? That's uh, a it's a really good question. Um, obviously, you know, uh, my parents played a big role in that. Um, the the, you know, the the teachers that I had at uh, at, at school, um, you know, and also people that I was involved with early in my career. I mean, the, you know, the people that um, you know, that had the, the the strongest influence on on that. So um, a guy called Remus Brett, who was my my first boss, if you like, after I left university, and remains a really good friend. Um, he actually works now with Local Globe, kind of full circle. So um, we were together at Data Monitor. He just um, he was my boss. He left. He set up a business which he sold to McKinsey. Uh, left McKinsey and has now sort of transitioned into venture capital. So, um, so all of a sudden, I've become very valuable to him. But uh, no, we're, we're still really good friends. But you know, a, a very good influence on, on on me in terms of you know how to you know how to lead, how to give responsibility at an early age. Um, you know how it's possible to you know to to drive people you know without you know having to crack the whip over them. Um, so yeah, really really good lessons from him and. and you know, David Solar and, and Dennis Atkinson, particularly when I was with SoftBank, which was where I sort of started in venture, I obviously learned a, a great deal from from from, from them and, and from all of the people that I've, I've I've worked with over the years. But you know, the earlier in your your career, the stronger those influences are. Yeah, you said earlier on in response to a different question that you've got no regrets, um, which is good to hear. But what's the company the one company you really wish you'd invested in the one that got away and why yeah i mean so again really good question so so, so i could probably read off a whole load of them um but the, the one that springs to mind um and it, it, we, we 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 were there but we weren't close enough so when i started at what was casino private equity which is the business we spun out to um to set up the the dfj spree business um, we, we were looking at Skype. We were, you know, we were, you know, we, we were, we, we were around that deal. Um, not saying that we we would have won it if we competed for it, but we we, we were aware of it and we were in the game. Um, and actually, we had something in the portfolio which was a bit competitive, um, so we didn't push as hard as we could. Um, but I think just the the scale of the win with that company and what it catalyzed in the European market. Um, it, you know, it's been foundational for you know it was a obviously a huge hit for for the index and ePlanet funds that were that, that were in it, but um, that that was a you know a business that you know that, that triggered so much in the market that um, that you know would have been um, would have been unbelievable to to, to be involved with. But uh, you know, as I say, you, you win some and you lose some. And the good thing about an early stage strategy is that you need to be in enough good companies to make it work. If you run a late stage strategy, you need to not miss very many. Otherwise, you um it, it, you know you, you you struggle to make the portfolio work because they're on that many companies which can go on to deliver the huge valuations that will, you know, that will return these large late stage funds. But at the early stage, um, you need to be in enough good stuff. So, so, so our strategy can, can still win, even if we don't get everything that we want. Yeah. Well, ho hopefully you've got a, a future Skype in sitting in your portfolio. So, uh, um, if we have this, if we have a follow up to this conversation in two or three years time, you can, you can elaborate on that. Um, uh, what changes, would you like to see in the European um, VC and startup ecosystem? Yeah, so, so, so um, 
So I think we've seen a lot of very positive changes. So I mean, uh, um, that my um, sort of reflections on the last 17 years is that it, you know, the the ecosystem is now almost unrecognisable from from what it was you know, back when when I began um, with SoftBank in, in in 2000. So I think I think we've seen a lot of really positive change. Um, and one of those most important changes, which I would like to see even more of, is that I think the the personality of the industry has changed very dramatically. Um, it's gone from being an industry which you know is dominated by very alpha personalities um, to being a much more um, you know sort of consensual um, you know consensus seeking um, and collaborative industry, um, which I think is a, a really positive development. And anything that sort of supports that, I think, is um, it, you know is, is is very beneficial in some of the you know the the industry initiatives that you know the seed camps some of the incubators that have followed um you know ef the early stage you know, investment environment in generally you know so people are you know sharing deals working together um you know collaborating creating friendships that's really really strong and actually is you know is um you know is is becoming a genuine ecosystem and that's what we need to continue to develop awesome so final final question what's the one um, piece of advice you'd want to give to any um, um, up-and-coming um, enterprise software entrepreneur? I, I think the so I would take that a slightly different way. Actually, I, I think the so one of the things that I've learned, and this applies to enterprise software just as much as it applies to the other areas that that, that, that we invest in. I think if if you're an entrepreneur and you're asking your investors or your potential investors how you should be running your business, what you should be doing, I think you're in a dangerous place. Um, that there is a, there is a, and you know, in, in, in my mind, certainly, and this is our model of venture capital, right? Is, is it's about supporting and enabling founders, entrepreneurs to, to, to do great things, right? We're not saying that we come in, you know, and we can, you know, we can, you know, we can give you the, the recipe. Some people do do that. Uh, it may work for them, but, but actually, I, I think as an entrepreneur, as a founder, the only way to success in the long term is being helped to find the answers within yourself. So I see my role as a, a you know, as an investor, as a board member. As a mentor, really, in in you know for um, for, for for founders, as you know, as, as you know, as holding up a mirror, testing alternatives, um, you know, you know, testing that they feel comfortable with, you know, with what they're doing, um, trying to make sure that what they're trying to do aligns with their personality. Because if you try to do something which your you know your personality doesn't fit or you're not very good at, then it's see more than ten times harder. Um, so trying to help people to understand how to align. Their business and commercial priorities with the things that you know that, that they're innately good at um, is a really important part of you know of, of, of what we do and how we help teams to, to 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 develop. And we need to know when to when to come in and when to when when, when to when, when to butt out. But if if I'm telling someone how to run their business, then um, that's generally a disaster, and it's probably because the business is not going very well. All of the successful entrepreneurs that I, I work with, they, they they know what they're doing, and they they, they need people to reflect with. Um, you know, and they, you know, they, they, they need people to, to think with, but they, they don't need to be told what to do. <laughs> okay. So maybe, maybe that's the advice. Um, if you don't know what you're doing, um, go off, yeah, come back when you <laughs> yes, do. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> okay. That's great. Well, Tom, thank you so much for your time today, for all the advice you've given to budding and even uh, experienced uh, entrepreneurs. Um, and uh, wish you and the, the team at uh, Oxford Capital Ventures, great success with the portfolio. Uh, looking forward to hearing about uh, some, uh, some, some unicorn type exits in, um, in a few years time.
Sounds good. Thank you, Gary. Cheers. Thanks, Tom. This episode of the Startup to Scale Up Game Plan was brought to you by Alpina Search. Head over to www.alpinasearch.com for advice on scaling your technology startup and recruiting high-impact senior talent. 